0: It is uh, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, right? Uh, good man in his uh, pastoral robe there, and I uh, bring him up for a reason, but let me remind you of some of the things about this amazing uh, modern-day leader uh, in our uh, culture, though he has uh, passed on by virtue of his assassination Uh, the things that live on by virtue of his legacy. Martin Luther King Jr. was born on January 15th, 1929. That's why that we celebrate his life this weekend. Uh, In 1944, he graduated from Booker T. Washington High School. Are you ready? At the age of 15, he bypassed the ninth grade and the 12th grade and ended up at Morehouse College a couple years early. Uh, During his time at Morehouse College, he uh, became ordained for ministry at the age of 19 and eventually earned a BA in sociology. He graduated from Morehouse College in 1948, went on to study at Crozer Theological Seminary here in the great state of Pennsylvania. He was one of six black students in the entire school and yet uh, graduated from Crozer first in his class. He was a brilliant, brilliant man. He went on Uh, to become a doctoral student at Boston University, where he earned his PhD in systematic theology, yikes, in 1955. And that fall, at the age of 24, he became the pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. Listen, he had at least a half a dozen opportunities to either teach in the university or to pastor churches, and he chose to go to Montgomery, Alabama, him and his wife, Coretta, because they wanted to re-enter the South, Uh, in order to lead God's people there. What he didn't know is that only months after being in Montgomery, a woman by the name of Rosa Parks would walk onto a bus and sit just one row into a whites-only, sadly, whites-only section of the bus. She was arrested, and there began a bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, guess who was at the lead of that boycott? It was Martin Luther King Jr. He was thrust into not only leadership there, but later the national spotlight as a leader for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to coordinate activities related to the civil rights movement. It was all nothing that King esteemed to be, but rather a mantle, a cloak, uh, in the language that we've learned in First and Second Kings, a cloak placed on him in numerous places and on many occasions. Martin Luther King Jr. persisted in the calling that was upon him. He would inspire a movement for justice. He would influence legislation for civil rights. He would be the youngest at 35 to ever receive the Nobel Peace Prize among many, 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 many other accolades. But, as you know, it would come at a cost. Many would doubt his abilities because of his youth. Many would secretly attempt to corrupt his name and his position and most of all, many would mock him, imprison him. He was thrown in prison 30 times in his short life. And eventually, he was assassinated on April 4th, 1968, at the age of 39. There were doubters. There were corruptors. And there were mockers of one of the greatest leaders in modern history. And today, as we continue to look at Elisha, what I want you to see is that the very same thing <laughs> is happening to our friend, our prophet Elisha in 2 Kings? If you remember, uh, Elisha is just being a farmer's son when Elijah comes by and lays his cloak on him, a mantle, and a call to become prophet in Israel. He spends time with Elijah, maybe a decade or so. And last week, we witnessed that amazing picture that Anya captured for us of Elijah being taken up into heaven in a whirlwind, leaving Elisha as the lead prophet, a position that he did not esteem or imagine, but one he found himself in. And as we know it today, a position that would prophesy hope for a people about to be thrown into exile. And I'll reminds you that as we study Elisha this winter and this spring, it is that we might hear that message of hope from one who came to prophesy in a very difficult time in which no one seemed to have much hope. As Elijah had prophesied in exile, Elisha was the one to prophesy a return, a reversal of the reality that in many ways gives us a pre-understanding of the reality of Christ in our lives, that though the sin has thrown us into exile, we have this hope in Christ of a grand reversal of redemption, as we sang about our Redeemer this morning. So how do the first days of Elisha as prophet go? Last week we saw that first moment. Well, that is our text today. In fact, if you wanted a cute sermon title, I don't focus on cute sermon titles because I spend way too much trying to think of cute sermon titles. Uh, it, it would be a, what, the, the the first days of the prophet Elisha. That's not even very cute, is it? No. Uh, so anyhow, we'll just forget titles uh, altogether. Uh, how would Elisha deal with the doubters, the corruptors, and the mockers? Well, that is where we land today. And hopefully in this, uh, learn how we indeed in today's world could live as messengers of hope in a broken world and how we face, even in our lives, uh, those those who doubt us, those who seek to corrupt us, and those who tend to mock us. Ready to go there? Second Kings chapter 2, verses 15 through 25. Is three stories that we will read and comment on separately as we work through this text. So uh, really, three sermons in one. Don't get scared. I'm going to try to move quickly. You ready? Second Kings, chapter two, verse 15. I'll, I'll read and kind of talk a bit about the text as we go through it and then make some application of it. You ready? Verse 15, now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him who was Elisha opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him, and they bowed to the ground before him. So remember this, Elijah has just been taken up in the whirlwind, Uh, Elisha has taken his cloak, And he's come back to the Jordan River in which the prophets stand on the other side. And he hits the river as Elijah did. And the river parts and he walks across dry ground. So here he comes and he comes to the sons of the prophets who are standing on the other side. And they have great respect for him. They even say, listen, we believe the spirit of Elijah is on you, Elijah. They even come to meet him and bow to the ground before him. But then listen to what they say in verse 16. They said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. Who are they looking for? Elijah. Good old buddy, better senior pastor, really guy of power, super prophet, Elijah, right? They say, It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. So, so hear this, the prophets come to Elisha and say, we respect you, we bow to you, but we'd like to go look for Elijah. I, there's a couple of streams of thought, one thinking that he's still alive, and man, so if Elijah lived through the whole Baal thing and through everything that he's lived through, maybe a whirlwind's not going to kill him either. Maybe he just kind of flew onto a mountain someplace, and if we find him, we might still have Elijah some streams of thought thinking that maybe indeed he has died in this whirlwind, thinking that the prophets have seen the whirlwind and, and that they need to retain his body to give him a proper burial. Either way, there is this great respect for Elijah as they bow to Elisha. Well, Elisha is a man of few words that we're going to learn, right? And he said to them, you shall not send. Basically, he said, don't go. I, I, I'd like to read into the text a bit in thinking that he said, Listen, Elijah and God and I, we like talked. And uh, he got taken up into heaven and I stood there and watched it firsthand. Uh, He's not anywhere on these mountains. You don't need to go. But, verse 17 says, when they urged him till he was ashamed. (laughs) I, I, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation. Maybe you've had a child that wanted something badly. Please, daddy, please, daddy, please, daddy, please, daddy, please, daddy. Begs, please, please, daddy, please, mommy, please, daddy, please, mommy. Sometimes I do this to Denine. Please, honey, please, honey, please, honey, right? The reality is, is that sometimes when you beg enough, it actually shames the person to say, all right, go ahead. That was how it worked in my household, my fathering was if they just begged and pleaded and rolled their eyes enough, I'd give them whatever they want, right? And so that's exactly what Elisha does. When they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, all right, go, send. And they sent their 450 men. And for three days they sought him but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And Elisha said to them, or at least what I would have said to them is, told you so. He was more holy than I was. He says, Did I not say to you, do not go? You see the doubters? Elisha is a leader, a prophet of God. And these come and they're looking in a past day and they're looking towards a past leader and they're doubting whether Elisha can be that man of God. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are there doubters in your life? Some that may doubt you. Some that are in relationships with you that doubt Jesus. And listen, uh, if we're honest, and I like being honest, some of the worst doubters in my life live between here and here. Right? Some of the ones that tell me the biggest lies about myself, the lack of respect about myself are the very people that live in my own Mind. you have doubters in your life elisha faced doubters the prophets came and they bowed but then went to search for elijah as if to say listen you're good we've seen you do the whole parting of the jordan thing we believe in you we bow and respect to you but where is elijah At some degree, these prophets are doubting that Elisha is at the same level as Elijah was. Are there doubters in your life? Doubters of the person that you've been called to be. Doubters of the God that you serve. And sometimes those doubters live in our heads. What do we do with the doubter? Well, let's look at Elisha. What does Elisha do with the doubter? Notice that he does not use his authority or power to overwhelm the doubter. He doesn't stand upon some rock, take some kind of staff and do 13 miracles to say, listen, I'm the guy. That's not what he does. He's even soft enough to be ashamed at their ludicrous requests and lets them go. Elisha says, go search for Elijah, and they do. When They don't find him. They come back, and he simply says, Did I not say to you, do not go? Here here is what I learn in this text and I'm learning in life. That I need to journey with the doubter. I need to journey with the doubter, that, that indeed in my life, whether they're doubting my leadership, whether they're doubting my Lord, or even their voices in my hood that, that doubt one or the other, that, that they're seeking to take a journey to find truth. And so what I see Elisha doing is like, not power move, not power surge, but go search for him. Go ahead. Go look. He's not there. Elisha does two things. He allows them to go, but he stands upon the truth that he knows and allows him to take a journey. Don't push the doubters out of your life, but invite them to see you for who you are, all the while working to strengthen your understanding of who God has meant you to be. Do you hear that today? Vodibachan is a great preacher, uh, theologian, and a very large guy that you just respect when you see him, right? So Votie Bakken is this guy that loves Jesus. And I'll never forget one of the first times I ever saw Votie It was um, at an Alistair Begg conference uh, up at Parkside Church. And he told this story, or gave us this truth. He said, listen, when doubters come into your life, especially referring to the doubters in Jesus, he says, "Uh, don't push them away, but walk with them. He said, take them by the hand and take a journey with them because as you journey with them, even in their unbelief, they're going to fall into a pit at some point (laughs) and you're going to be there to help them out. And then you'll journey with them some more and they're going to fall in another pit and you'll be there to help them out. And then you'll walk with them a little bit more and they'll fall into another theological pit, moral pit, the reality of a relational pit, and you'll be there to help them out. And pretty soon, because you've journeyed with them, they'll see Jesus in you. I think that's what Elisha's doing. Go search for him. Let me journey with you. And when you come to the conclusion that God has anointed me as prophet, then you will join me. And they did. Journey. Journey with the doubter. Second story. You ready? Told you we'd try to go fast. I've entitled it the... Jericho double standard, and it introduces us to some corruption or corruptors, verses 19 through 22. Now the men of the city, the city being Jericho, said to Elisha, behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. Now, this story is amazing, isn't it? this, This story deserves a sermon series in of itself. So we're going we're, we're gonna to mistreat it by taking it quickly this morning. But what I want you to see is that this story really could be the, the very center. I often try to find, as we do a series, a story or a text that becomes kind of a fulcrum, a, a thing that we're going to follow. And this story may just be that for Elisha's life. Let me play it out for you a, a bit. They go to Jericho and Elisha sees and the people tell him that this is a beautiful land. There's things growing here. But the things that are growing are not producing fruit. Why? Because it is corrupted by bad water at its core. It was said of Jericho in this day that it would produce fruit, but because of the bad water, the fruit would drop early and never become fully mature. That even the cattle and the livestock in Jericho would have many uh, miscarriages that, that would indeed result in death. And it was often due to the reality of the water. So what does Elisha do? He takes some salt and the word of the Lord and he purifies the water and he heals the land. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing story of hope, right? In the midst of death that Elisha is surrounded by, he literally takes salt and brings life. It is the great reversal that we have talked about as Elisha is this prophet of reversal, that as death has taken over Jericho, Elisha literally comes in, and by virtue of this salt and the word of the Lord brings indeed life to this place. But listen, It is a story that is even more meaningful when you remember some things about Jericho, the city in which it takes place. Many of us remember the great Sunday school story of the defeat of Jericho as God's people, led by Joshua, came into the promised land. Remember that? They're just coming into the promised land and they've crossed the Jordan River and they come to Jericho. It's a fortified city with a large wall and God says, listen, I want you to go out and do what? March around the city. Here go. seems like a crazy idea. They do that for six days. On the seventh day, God says, you're going to march around seven times this time, and then you're going to blow the trumpets, and the city's going to fall in. To which they all went, what? And that, but, hey, listen, your God will do it, and they do it, and the city falls, right? And it is destroyed. We remember that Sunday school story, but what Sunday school may not have told us is that in Joshua 6:26, God follows up that story and says this, Cursed... Before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. So the city is destroyed and God says, you shall not rebuild this. In fact, the one who rebuilds the city will be cursed. God has given the city into your hands and it shall not be rebuilt. But wait a minute, you say, Pastor Rick. We're now a number of years by that and there's a city called Jericho that Elisha is in. How did that happen? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because during the reign of Ahab, which is current to this story, Ahab indeed rebuilds the city. Not paying any attention to the reality of a curse that was mentioned years before. And it's a beautiful city because it's a beautiful place. Some of you have seen Jericho but the city is cursed. It looks beautiful, but at its core, the water is putrid. That is, until God determines to reverse the curse. Through whom? Through Elisha. It's the central theme of Elisha's life and prophecy of hope, the reversal of the exile. And it is the hope. Listen of the gospel we, you and I, can look as beautiful as we want on the outside, but without Jesus in our hearts, we are still dead in our sins. Until the curse of sin in our hearts is reversed, we will not produce any fruit that is eternal in nature. We, we, we sing a song often at Christmas time. We just sang it this past Christmas. Joy to the world, Right? Do you remember hymn three or verse three? No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. What? Far as the curse is found, Jesus has come to reverse the curse. Oh, I like that. And Elisha is that prophetic voice of that great truth. Let me ask you, do you know corruption in your own hearts? The things that eat at us from the inside out. Do you know corruption from the outside in? The people that serve as a constant threat in our lives to convince us that the outside is more important than our hearts. You hear me? The people that tend to draw us away from Christ and into the things of the world. The people that draw us away from making him our all to making him a sliver of the piece of the pie. The people in our lives that draw us to corruption, thoughts about ourselves, thoughts about the world, fears about the reality of our circumstances. Well, if you know those corruptors, whether they be internal corruptors or whether they be corruptors from the outside, hear this hope from the miracle of Elisha that would precede the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. How do we face our double standard? How do we heal the corruption of our hearts or the corruptors that stand around us? I'll tell you how. We apply the gospel. Elisha went and got salt. And we could have a fascinating study of the reality of how salt was used in those days. But let me skip to the end of that chase. In the reality that that salt has come to preserve and to purify. And so he asked for salt and he pours it in the water. And the water is healed. Likewise, in our corruption... When Jesus indeed pours his spirit into us, the gospel comes, it purifies, and it preserves. And listen, for the corruptors in your life, the people that push in on on what you feel comfortable with, the people that indeed tempt you from the outside, listen, the reality is is our goal, our message of hope is to apply the gospel to them. A.W. Pink Love that name. Great theologian has said this. This miracle at Jericho speaks of neutralizing the effects of the curse, overcoming the power of innate depravity. So get it, where there is corruption in your heart, the nasty things that sneak into your life that create double standards and unfruitfulness, apply the salt of the gospel. And where there are people in your lives that tempt you, tempt us to things that are not good, the things that lead us from Jesus and eternal fruitfulness or fruitlessness in our lives. Think about this. How can I reverse that curse? How can I apply the gospel to their lives rather than have them lead me to places I don't want to go? We have hope. We're to be messengers of hope even as Elisha was in this story. Alexander Stewart, you'll hear me quote him from time to time. I have uh, purchased a book by him of sermons through the life of Elisha. He's a great um, Scott preacher, says this, what every sinful man and woman supremely needs is a change of heart. And the only thing that will change the hearts with a change that is vital and saving, read fruitful, is the salt of the grace of God. Listen, journey with the doubter, apply the gospel to the corrupter, and it leads us to this third story. And some of you who read ahead cannot wait to hear what I'm going to say about this. Are you ready? Verse 23. Elisha, he went up from there to a place called Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. Some of you are just offended at that. Well, so was Elisha. He turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two mama bears. You ever face an angry mama bear? You ever face a mama bear trying to protect her cubs? Two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. Yeah, I just, like, I just read that from the Bible. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. I have to tell you, A cute, funny story because this is a heavy place in the scripture, right? So sometimes cute, funny stories can help us, right? My son loves Jesus uh, and has from a very young age, but he also has a very strange sense of humor that he gets from his mother. (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's not true. This is something that I would have done. So uh, he is a senior in high school at Heartland Christian School in Columbiana, Ohio, and he is on the uh, homecoming court, right? He would then even become homecoming king, just to brag on him for just a second. But at Heartland Christian School, when you are on the homecoming court, they do this bio thing for you, right? And one of the things in the bio is they ask you for your favorite Bible verse, hear the story, right? His favorite Bible verse that his Bible teacher let him use that got pronounced over the gymnasium as his favorite Bible verse was, and he turned around and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord and two bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. It's a proud moment for me as a father. (laughs) What in the world? When you see him, ask him. It's true. Listen, this is hard, isn't it? Like, is this a place that you'd like to be, like Thomas Jefferson, who, who took scissors and just cut out some pieces of the Bible and said, "I wish that would have like never happened." We can't. It's here. What does it mean? Well, Elijah's life quickly turns from grace to judgment. But again, let's consider the place in which it happens. Bethel has some great biblical roots. It would be the place that Jacob meets God and that whole Jacob's ladder thing happens, right? It literally means the house of God. But Bethel has become a place of great evil. Pink again says this, originally Bethel was called the house of God, but now it has become a habitation of the devil, one of the principal seats of Israel's idolatry. What has happened to Bethel? Well, during the reign of Jeroboam, a calf was built in Bethel as an alternative place of worship, and it had led to a complete abandonment of God and a place of worshiping Baal, a foreign, false god. So get this, there's a transformation that has happened from being the house of God to now being a place seated in idolatry and in evil. Generations have gone by of learning not of God, but of Baal. Not of the creator God, but of a calf that we now worship. And there has been a hatred, a mockery of Jehovah in this place. And so these young boys, as they come out and there's all kind. everybody likes to make a big deal about something, right, in commentaries. Everybody wants to make a big deal about how old these little boys are, right? Uh, I, I think they're old enough to make decisions. I think probably a good translation is really that they're young men. But irregardless, right, they, they come out not just as little, young, innocent boys, Right? They come out with generations of sin being taught to them of Baal. And so when they hear that one is coming, that is the servant of God, they go out and they mock him. They mock him. They say, go up. What's that in reference to? Well, it's in reference to a mockery of Elijah. Hey, where uh, that other guy went? Why don't you go to? Why don't you get out of town? Go up. And then go up, you bald head. Now, some of you that are less inclined on top, you need to know this, that in these days, hair was a sign of prominence and power and goodness and faithfulness, right? But Elisha seemingly has some kind of ailment. It's not that he went to the barber early that morning and had it trimmed, right? It's a, an ailment that he has that has left him without hair and so they find a weakness in him and they begin to mock him why don't you go up you without any power go up you bald head listen it's not a naive little game that kids are playing it is a generational sin of mockery to our God And so Elisha turns them to the hands of God Cursed are you. Did Elisha know that two angry mama bears were going to come from the woods and destroy them? I don't think so. But that's the hand of God. Judgment. Judgment upon sin. Alexander Stewart says, The incident of Bethel reminds us, That the gospel, which is primarily a revelation of grace, has also its side of judgment. Listen, people of God, it's not something we talk a lot about because it seems so harsh. But maybe it's something we need to realize more, not simply so that we can see and peer into the evil side of things, but that we can see more clearly the holiness of God. God is not one with this wide array of grayness that, eh, if you want to worship him a little bit, it's okay. If you want to say you like this God and this God and this God, if you want to say that, listen, my money is important as well as my God is important, if you want to say those things that bring mockery to his holiness, it will bring judgment because he is a holy God, the one true God, the only God who is to be worshipped above all gods. And his judgment is real. Something that Jesus talked about repeatedly. I won't turn there this morning, but Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46 is a parable that you know, right? It's the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's a parable of the glories of Being chosen by God and yet the eternal punishment of not being God's child. He gets to a place in this parable. Jesus portrays this king and and he separates the sheep from the goats. And he says to the sheep, you'll be with me in paradise. But to the goats, you'll spend eternity in hell. (laughs) The sheep respond first and go like, what have we done to deserve this? And he says, listen, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. But essentially, he said, listen, by the Spirit of God, you have done these things. And then he turns to the goats and he goes, eh, not so good for you. And they go, well, what have we done? Well, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And it's not because of those things, but it's because your heart is turned against me. And you make a mockery of who I am. And for that, you will receive judgment. That's the place generationally which these boys are in. Do you have mockers in your life? Not just doubters, not just corrupters, but people in your life that reject the God that you serve. Listen. I will not suggest that you curse them hoping to see two mama bears come out of your woods and destroy their children. It's not what I would suggest. But there is a stern warning here that we are not to entertain them. I would go as far as to say that we are to turn away the mocker. Lest we begin to soften to their statements and lose sight of the holiness of God. A lighter example of this in my own life that maybe gives you some insight. I don't think it's to the depth of this text, but it is an experience that I've had. Maybe that you have had that you're around people that know that you are a Christian. And when they swear, they say, I'm sorry. Right? So it's an occupational hazard for me, right? Somebody finds out I'm a preacher and then they cuss and they go, oh, I'm sorry. And I'm like, listen, didn't offend me. But my God. Right. And so I've been in lots of places where those situations happen. One place that is will always etch in my mind is early on as a trustee in Austintown. Right. So leaving kind of church ministry into my political life for just a second. And, and we go there and there's a lot of people there that don't love Jesus. Right. I wouldn't call them mockers, so hear this, I didn't call she-bears out after them, but the reality is, is they weren't following Jesus, and and in daily life with them, they would swear, and then they would apologize, and so one day, we just had to have a clarifying conversation, and I said this to them, you know, swearing, eh, you're going to swear, don't be all apologetic, I know I'm the preacher, it's okay, hear that, but... Do not, I I beg of you, do not take my Lord's name in vain. So the GDs and you got that, right? The GDs and the Jesus Christ and those kinds of things, when I hear that, I am offended because that's a mockery to my God. And the room got really quiet. But I had about a half a dozen men who heard about the holiness of God in that moment. And there was one who refused to hear <laughs> of the holiness of God. And I think he would used GD so many times in his life that it just blustered out. And he would continue to apologize, but continue to use it. And I didn't call down she bears, but when he used it, I didn't laugh I didn't back down. I said, sir, you offend my God. So listen, turning away the mockers is not cursing them, but it is using that moment to say, listen, that's not acceptable in my world. You will not mock my God. Turn away the mockers. Sometimes in... Our lives will be times in which we have to walk away from people who do not get that. So listen, Elisha, he journeys with the doubter. He applies the gospel to the corrupter. But he turns his back on the mocker. Because Elisha had one goal in life, and that is to proclaim the holiness of God by prophesying the hope of God. It brought doubters and corruptors and mockers into his life. But but when we build our lives around the holiness of God and become proclaimers of the hope of God, guess what? We're going to have doubters and corruptors and mockers. What, What will we do? Well, let's learn from Elisha. Let's journey with the doubters that they might see Jesus. Let's apply the gospel to the corrupter that they might see Jesus and turn back the mocker that they might see Jesus. That was Elisha's hope and he was a proclaimer of it. Likewise, people of God, we need to be about the same. That we would build our lives around the hope of the gospel. That we might become natural proclaimers of that same gospel. Let's pray together. God, three crazy stories that arise all kinds of emotions and maybe questions, maybe angst. (laughs) Would you help us to hear your voice? Would you send your spirit in our hearts that we would hear hope in these places and that indeed we'd be inspired to build our lives as proclaimers of hope that indeed you are holy, you are worthy, you are precious in our sight and in our lives that we might be bold to lead doubters, to impact corruptors and to change the lives of mockers. I pray in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, "Amen." You stand.